0: An extraordinary event, one of the strangest uh, and most surprising events in scripture. Jesus transfigured into light and the characters of Moses and Elijah in conversation with him. What to make of it? What does it mean? We're not given a meaning to the story in uh, the way that Matthew tells it. It's just there. We're told what happened. And because it's such a strange and extraordinary thing, and because we're not told in the story what it means, people can tend to think that it never really happened, that it's just a bit of mythology that grew up around uh, Jesus to make him a bit more mysterious, a bit more interesting perhaps. But St. Peter who we had read to us at first, clearly thought it happened, really properly happened. He wrote to the people saying, we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power. We were eyewitnesses to his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love With him I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard the voice, he says, that came from heaven. We were with him on the sacred mountain. And then he goes on to apply and align his message to the prophetic messages of old. And the joining point is Christ transfigured into light. We saw it. We heard it. Well, if, if it didn't really happen, what on earth was Peter on about? But if it happened, and if Peter refers to it as something on which his teaching is based, and his instruction to the church is grounded in it, then we need to try and make some sense of it ourselves. It has to mean something. Now, this afternoon, there will be a paradox in my house. You know what a paradox is? It's where two opposing things that seem to be impossible to exist together actually do. And as you know, the great match illustrated by Elizabeth here is on this afternoon. And I have to tell you, I cannot lose. <laughs> I can't lose because whoever wins, because I'm not playing, because whoever wins, I'm on their side. I am indeed a full and complete and total Irishman, and I am a full and complete and total Englishman. That is a paradox, but it is true. So I can't lose. I also, unless it's a draw, I'm going to be a loser because the other side will win. So I shall be both a winner and a loser at the same time this very afternoon. And that's important. Not to me, but to you. It's important because paradox is the key to understanding this transfiguration. You see, the first thing that this transfiguration means is that... uh, is that it's possible to see heaven on earth. It is possible to see heaven on earth. Verse 2, his face shone like the sun, his clothes became as white as light. And uh, in verse 3, Moses and Elijah were talking with Jesus. Both of them long departed, but now both with him. And the paradox is that it looks like a vision of heaven. It looks like, you know, the beyond, the majesty, the glorious majesty. Jesus shining like the sun. Moses and Elijah, long departed fathers, appearing alive in front of them. But it's taking place right there before their eyes. It was their friend Jesus that they knew, who they knocked about with, that it was happening to. It was their world and yet it was something of God's world too, heaven on earth. Now with both Moses and Elijah, there was a mystery surrounding them both. uh, Moses went up the mountain, talked with God, and his face shone. We know that. Uh, And uh, when he came down, the people wouldn't look at him because of the The shining face that he had. And Elijah went up the mountain and uh, after an earthquake and a wind and a fire, he heard the voice of God in the sheer silence. But of Moses, the shining face was reflected glory. His face was like the light of the moon which shines with the light of the sun. It borrows its light from somewhere else. The real, genuine, original light shone from Jesus' face. His face shone like the sun, we're told. And of Elijah, he said he heard the voice of God. But of Jesus, when the voice comes from the glorious majesty, we are told, listen to him. His is the voice, because Jesus is the very Word of God. Now, we pray, as has been eloquently illustrated this morning, in this corner, your kingdom come, your will be done. And we say that to God, but perhaps what we miss in our prayers is that the answer to our prayer is in the listening Listen to him, the voice said. Because when we really hear what Jesus says, heaven begins to come to earth. When we listen to Jesus and what he says, we begin to live as people who have been touched by the power from heaven. Touched here on earth by power from heaven. So we become people who know what God's kingdom is like. People who bless it when we see it. People who shape our homes by it. They shape their relationship with their husband or wife or their relationship as a father or a mother by these things from heaven. People who shape the community life by it. Their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ living and serving in fellowship and worship together. People who go to the workplace and they shape their workplace and their attitude to work by the kingdom of heaven on earth. Now then, if we are to be the people of heaven... As we listen to Jesus, there are two things we need to do. And firstly, it's to read scripture. Read scripture, the written word of God. We believe it to be the inspired word. Useful in every situation for rebuking and encouraging and instructing and guiding and teaching. Able to lead us, they tell us at our ordination, into full salvation in scripture. So give time to Bible reading. That's why I say have the Bible open when the preacher is preaching. So that you can follow along. It's a way to get familiar with it. And the second thing is to pray. The process of listening and learning to speak the words of God in conversation with him. Because when we read scripture and when we pray, the written word becomes in us a living word. Begins to shape a a, and guide and be the dynamic power within us it's possible to see heaven on earth when we listen to Jesus as his word begins to live in us and through us the second paradox in this transfiguration the thing that gives it meaning is that it's possible to be attracted by the glory and afraid of it at the same time. Uh, Peter, James, and John have seen this glorious light, and it's a powerful thing. And they're drawn to it. They feel privileged by it. Indeed, they want to remain in this moment. Lord, he says, says Peter in verse 4, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I'll put up shelters, uh, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And that seems a bit odd to us. What is he going on about, putting up a few shacks on top of a mountain? I used to live in Cumbria. uh, The highest peak in England was only um, half a mile from the end of my parish. I got pretty high, but they went a little bit higher in the next parish. And on top of a mountain, if you put up a shack, it will blow away within a week, without a doubt. It is cold and wet and horrible. And yet we see Peter going on about... Putting up a shelter. Well, actually, the Jewish expectation was that when God's Messiah would come, he would live in a tent amongst them as God dwelt in the tabernacle tent uh, way back when they were in the desert with Moses. So that was their expectation. There would be a whole lot of tents and one of them would be, would be the Messiah living in it. So according to that kind of Jewish expectation, he wasn't far off the mark in saying what he said. But he said it's good that we should be here. It's good that we are here. This is something worth seeing, something worth holding on to because this is the turning point of the cosmic history of the universe. That's what he was thinking. But then the vision comes a bit too close. Whilst he's still speaking, a bright cloud covers them in verse 5. And the voice comes from the cloud. And verse 6, when the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground terrified. See, that's the paradox. One moment they're drawn to it, it's good, and the next they are terrified falling down on their faces the glory that they found so attractive from a distance was terrifying to them when they were touched by it we thought brexit was going to be such a good idea but we never thought it would be as difficult as this we liked the idea of reducing pollution but we didn't think we would have to do without our coal fires and our wood burners or not be able to drive down the Ballot Road for a couple of hours in the day. We're all for avoiding climate change, but how are we possibly going to cope without our diesel and petrol cars in 15 years' time? Or as somebody once said to me in another place, can we have central heating in the church? And I said, yes, of course you can. You can have great central heating in the church. Lovely, they said. I said, all you've got to do is pay for it. This transfiguration, of course, is more profound than that. They were both fascinated and trembling, drawn to it and repelled by it at the same time. It's one of the characteristics, actually, of a genuine spiritual experience. It evokes the love of God in us, for God in us, but we're not sure we like it when it happens. So many clergy will tell you, with all their heart they wanted to be ordained and yet they fought it all the way because it was such an awesome and frightening prospect. And the key to it is to look at Jesus. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. The one who made them feel so weak need was also the one who gave them the strength to stand. Because Jesus comes to those who look to him. Jesus came, verse 7, and touched them. Get up, he said, don't be afraid. See, it's the touch of Jesus that fulfills this vision. Moses led the people toward the promised land, but he never set foot in the promised land until this moment with Jesus. Elijah, the archetypal prophet, the one, you know, whom they all look to, spoke his words, but it was all meaningless until he stood in the presence of Jesus in whom all prophecy is fulfilled. Look up and see Jesus because he makes us what we can be. And what makes it possible is the touch of Jesus. Being attracted and uh, afraid at the same time is a sign of a true spiritual experience. So we offer to pray for you in this corner toward the end of the service. And some people come. But others may not like the idea or may like the idea, but they worry About what might happen. About being seen. About uh, falling over like some other people do. What might happen. But if your heart beats faster at the thought of going up for prayer, that's a sign. If your heart beats faster because you think you might have a word that the church ought to hear in the service that's a sign a sign that excites you and it'll be a sign that makes you afraid as well perhaps you recognize that in yourself when it happens perhaps you've never experienced that but now i've said it you might recognize it when it does Because when that happens, it's the invitation to look at Jesus, because it's about him and not you, and to know his touch. Being attracted and afraid at the same time is a true sign that Jesus is at work. And then the third thing this uh, transfiguration means, by paradox, is that it's possible to be joyful in suffering, Jesus started teaching them in verse 9 about his resurrection. And they ask him in verse 10, well, why then do people say that Elijah must come first? Another strange question, which you need to know something about the Jewish expectations uh, for it. And the key word is then. Why then do they say that Elijah must come? Because Jewish people believed that at the end of time there would be a general resurrection. All people would be raised uh, for judgment. And uh, uh, at the time everybody's raised to life, uh, Jesus came talking about the Son of Man being raised. So therefore that time must be close. They're putting these things together as they're listening to him. But they also believed that Before this general resurrection, Elijah would return. Elijah, you remember, was carried up to heaven uh, with the song that the uh, English supporters were singing at the time. And we'll do this afternoon. Swing low, sweet chariot, coming for to carry me home. He disappeared into heaven. He didn't die. He was transported. Therefore, if he's not dead, he can come back and they expected him before this general resurrection to return and elijah hadn't done that it appeared to them so if the resurrection was not near was near but elijah hadn't come why then do people say that he should what to do with all this expectation that we've had and carried for years If that's not true, that's going on in their heads as they ask the question. And the answer is there in verse 11 and 12, that the Elijah person has come. And he has done all things necessary to restore the kingdom. But he hasn't done it outwardly in the world around us. He's done it inwardly in the people's hearts. He called them to repentance to a change of heart, to be prepared to receive God's man, Messiah, when he comes. Because when Messiah comes, all things will be brought to completion. And of course, that person who prepared the way was John the Baptist. And the paradox is, of course, that John the Baptist did a great work. Jesus called him the greatest of all the prophets. His ministry was a triumph. It prepared the people to meet and receive Jesus. But for John, it brought him great suffering, imprisonment, and death. So Jesus says, I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him but have done to him everything they wished. There's triumph and suffering. Joy, which is about fulfillment, not happiness. John did everything that was asked of him in the vision of glory that's fulfilled. And in verse 12, Jesus tells them that the triumph and the suffering are the same thing. He must live it out in his own ministry. In order for the glory of heaven to be revealed, he must be crucified. In the same way, he says, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. He will triumph, but the triumph comes through the suffering. See, this mountaintop of experience explains the coming hilltop of crucifixion. Learn to see... The cross in the glory, and we will see the glory in the cross. And so then the thing to do, oh, I don't know where I've gone now. The thing to do then is to follow Jesus. Follow Jesus, because this teaching takes place as they are coming down the mountain. They didn't stay up there as if that uh, was all there was to it. They went on with Jesus, following him all the way, learning what it really means to be a disciple. Because when you've heard the guiding word of Jesus and when you know the empowering touch of Jesus, it's not all over. It's time to move on, to follow Jesus into the world, to be part of this heaven on earth thing so be prayed for here in this corner after our service or during the end of the service be prayed for here but live it out there and I can't promise you success I can't promise you success but I can promise you glory People may not thank us for accommodating homeless people on their doorstep. They may say slanderous things about us for writing to the Muslim society in support of their right to buy and to worship. They may not respond to us when we offer the invitation to hear good news and come to our uh, service that's not like anything else. See, there will be crucifixion, but there will also be resurrection. And it's on that resurrection that we set our hope. That's our joy, that nothing we do for Christ is wasted or lost. It's stored up, kept safe in heaven, as Peter says in one of his letters. According to his word and promise, we will endure all things for Christ. And we will grow in our discipleship. We become people who know joy in suffering. Becoming more like Jesus. Heaven on earth. Listening to him. Attracted and afraid. Looking to him. Joyful and suffering. Following him. May this be our transfiguration today.